Amen. I want to welcome you to Redemption Hill Church today. And we are here today because of who God is, because of what God has done. That's why we fellowship, that's why we sing, and that's why we're about to open his word and see what he has to say to us this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the 19th chapter of Exodus. I think all of us have had an experience at one time or another that was unforgettable. You know, the kind of experience that marks you, the kind of experience that changes your life, the sort of thing where you really look back and you think about your life before this thing happened and your life after this thing happened. Those kinds of events and experiences are seared into our minds and our memories. And for Israel, what happens in Exodus 19 will be exactly that kind of experience, except it'll be to a far greater degree than probably anything you and I could imagine. Because what happens in Exodus 19 is God comes down. And they feel the weight of his glory. At Mount Sinai, God comes down to speak, to give his people the law. It is a revelation of his will and his character and his nature that would forever shape not just their lives, but the future of the nation. And what happened in Exodus 19 still affects us today. It's a longer text, but I'm going to read it in its entirety today, and then we will pray together. Exodus chapter 19, we'll begin in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him. In thunder, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, 
The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Lord, I feel really small right now trying to describe and explain the phenomena that we see happening here in this text. And Lord, that's right, that we should feel that way. We come before you, God, recognizing that we do not see enough of your glory today. We do not see you fully as you really are. We do not have a complete view of you. And there is something of our faith and our fear and our humility and our worship that is probably lacking. But Lord, you give us this word so that that lack will be provided for. So that our fear and our faith and our worship would increase. So that our view of you would come into sharper focus. So that we would behold you more accurately as you truly are. So Lord, give us eyes that can see today. I pray that you would awaken our imaginations and help us to enter into this story. And to experience what they experienced to some measure. So that we might know you and fear you and worship you. We pray for your help to this end in Christ's name. Amen. Upon Israel's arrival at Mount Sinai, just to sort of back us up and remind us how we got here. They've come out of Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. They finally arrived at their destination. And now God has spoken to them through Moses. We talked about this last week. God rehearsed his great acts of deliverance. And he revealed his purposes for the people, that they would be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation for him. God had called them to obedience and formally communicated the terms of the covenant. And the people had responded, all that the Lord says we will do. And what comes next, in essence, is God saying, okay, good, If that's really what you're ready to commit to, then I'm going to come down and give you my law. So get ready. Get ready. The structure of our text today can really be summarized. If you look at it and trace out what's going on here, it's sort of a sandwich. It begins with this divine announcement and instruction in verses 9 through 15. And then following this instruction, we have the arrival of God himself on the mountain. Described there in verses 16 through 19. And then the rest of our text concludes with more divine instruction. So you have divine instruction, the arrival of God, and then divine instruction. And what is central to the layout of this text is also what is central to the message of this text. That God came down. God came down. And his presence, his nearness to his people is the theme. We see this repeated throughout the text. In verse 9 he says, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. In verse 11, it says the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. Verse 17 tells us that Moses brings the people to meet God. Verse 18 says the Lord descends on the mountain in fire. Verse 20 summarizes the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. The repetition's for a reason, and it shows us the point. This story is about God's arrival on Mount Sinai. And I want us to consider this morning two very simple points from this story. And the first has to do with who God is and what God is like. And the second point has to do very simply with who we are and what it is that we need. 
The first point is this. The arrival of God at Sinai confronts us with the powerful reality of his holiness. The arrival of God at Mount Sinai confronts us with the powerful reality of God's holiness. Now, if you've read the book of Exodus or if you've been with us during this sermon series, you'll know that this isn't the first time that God has made his presence known at Mount Sinai. Back in chapter 3, Moses, on this mountain, doing the work of a shepherd, had encountered a burning bush, a bush that was on fire, but this bush was not consumed. And as he drew near to see this wonder, do you remember what God said to Moses? He said, Moses, take off your shoes. Take those sandals off your feet. Why? You say it. You're standing on holy ground. Holy ground. The presence of God made the very place holy in that moment. That glimpse of God's presence made that scene where Moses stood a sacred place. And just like Moses did once before, now it's Israel's turn. They too are going to meet God on this mountain, but this time... God is going to fully pull back the curtain. He's going to get up close and personal. And because God is going to be there, now the entire mountain is to be considered holy. We see this holiness pervading the entire scene. And what we're struck with is the fact that the holiness of God's glory, it is a holy glory, a holy glory. When God came down, his glory the radiance of his majesty and the visible sight of his perfections, it was seen and heard and felt. It was glory. The word glory is not actually found in this text, but it is definitely described. The word glory can refer on the one hand to God's honor and his fame and his reputation. In that sense, God does all things for his glory. But glory, as I mentioned, can also refer to the visible manifestation of his perfections. What people see when God shows himself to them. And it's nothing short of explosively powerful. It's described as radiating light and heat and sound. On the mountain, they experienced God's glory in this sense. They heard, the text tells us, the thunder. They heard, the text tells us, the sound of a loud trumpet. They saw the lightning. They saw the fire. They saw the smoke. They trembled, according to verse 16. And verse 19 tells us the earth itself trembled because of the experience of this holy, completely other and foreign to them glory of God. Maybe you have sort of envisioned this scene before in your own mind. And sometimes maybe you think of, of a mountain with a cloud sort of swirling around the pinnacle. And Moses goes up the mountain into the cloud at the pinnacle. But that's really not what's described here. The text tells us that the whole mountain is wrapped in smoke. And that this smoke goes up like a kiln, like a furnace. So you have this entire mountain completely wrapped with smoke. And that smoke is climbing in this massive column into the farthest reaches of the heavens. This incredible sight, this intimidating sight to them, is combined with ear-shattering thunder and even feeling the earthquake. I don't know if you've ever experienced thunder up close. Some of you have, maybe on the golf course, maybe if you're like me, out in your backyard cleaning out a clogged gutter in the middle of a rainstorm, been there, done that. 
you know, we, we understand what thunder is scientifically. And even with the knowledge of that, a scientific knowledge that they didn't have, even if you know what thunder is, you know it's just sound. It's still, when, it, when, when you experience lightning and thunder up close, it will punch you in the face. It, 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 it will create a reaction in you that you can't, even though you know what it is, you can't not react that way. And these people didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have. But they knew that this thunder was more than just a natural phenomenon. This is more than just an electrical connection that, that sends these shock waves going you know, that, that we perceive as sound. It was more than that. This was the presence of God. And creation itself was having a hard time keeping it together because God was there. Now, this doesn't mean that God was angry. We may be tempted to read this. And even in pop culture, you know, when someone says something blasphemous, we're always like, oh, watch out, you know, look out for thunder and lightning sort of a thing. And often, you know, these sort of phenomena are associated with God's wrath. But this is not about God's wrath here. God is not angry with them. This is simply what happens when the infinite God invades the finite world. When the uncreated one steps into creation, this is what happens when the transcendent becomes imminent. And when the Holy One, who is unlike and completely other than anything else in creation, shows up. This is God's glory. Listen, God's glory is not just an idea. It is not just a theory. It is real. It is more real than the mountain or the people that were standing at its base. God is so utterly different, so set apart, so unique, so holy that the creation itself can barely withstand his presence. Israel saw the holy glory of God, of Yahweh, at the mountain. And this isn't the only time we see similar things like this. Solomon and the people of his day, a later generation, they saw the glory of God at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. Isaiah saw this glory in a vision of the very throne room of God with angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Peter and James and John, they saw this glory. On the Mount of Transfiguration, just for a moment, Jesus pulled back the curtain and he let them see who he really was, shining bright as the sun. In every case, when people encounter the glory of God, the response is always one of fear and awe at his holy glory. The arrival of God on the mountain confronts us with the reality, the powerful reality of God's holiness. And that holiness is seen here in his glory, the manifestation of his glory. But this holiness is also seen in the holy word that God gives. Now look in verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. Why? Here's the reason. That the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Verse 19 tells us that as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Part of what's going on here is, is God wants to make sure that his law, his word, would be perceived and understood and received not just as the word of a man, not just as Moses' word under his authority. He wanted to make sure everyone knew this is what God has said. God anticipated that later Israel would be tempted to say, well, that's just the word of Moses. And they might not take him seriously. And they might dangerously and fatally underestimate the authority of his word. 
So he planned to bring the people near so that they themselves could hear with their own ears that God is the one speaking, so that his law would be imprinted upon their hearts, that these commandments would never be doubted, that they were truly from the mouth of God and not from the mouth of a man. Have you ever tried to share scripture with someone and maybe you got this kind of response of, you know what, that was just Paul speaking and he had his own cultural biases. Maybe you've heard someone say, you know what, that's an Old Testament author who is very obviously uneducated and he was sort of, you know, entrapped by the superstitions of his day. Maybe someone has said, you know what, that's just your interpretation. Perhaps you've heard the objection, you know, the Bible's been changed and translated wrongly over the years and it isn't really trustworthy. Friends, this is a refusal to acknowledge the power and the authority of God's word. If you weren't here with us this morning during our adult Bible class, I would commend you to go back and listen to what Carrie Wilson shared about the inspiration and the authority and the inerrancy of God's self-revelation in his word. It is a holy word. God's word is in a category all by itself. We read books, we listen to people talk. All those things are helpful and interesting and often even true. But there is no comparison to the word of God. There is no comparison. Psalm 138, verse two, the psalmist writes, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God's word is holy, set apart, exalted above all things. And God says, listen, I want to make sure my people know that. And so tell them to get ready and draw near so that they can hear with their own ears that I'm the one speaking as I'm about to give you this law. God is holy. His glory is holy. His word is holy and his people must know this. So the arrival of God at Sinai confronts us with this powerful reality, the reality of God's holiness. But there's a flip side to this coin. There's a contrasting truth that we also discover in this text, and it's this. Secondly, the arrival of God at Sinai also confronts us with the painful reality of our sinfulness. There's the powerful reality of God's holiness, which shines light on us and reveals to us the painful reality of our sinfulness. John Calvin once wrote, Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. And that's exactly what this text is doing. That's exactly what they are experiencing. And that's why God has preserved it for us, for you and me, to read and to understand When we realize who God is, we begin to see things as we ought. And we begin to realize who we are. And it's once we understand who God is and who we are that then we finally start to have a clue as to what it is that we most need, what we most need. And we see what these people need here in this text. They need, first of all, preparation. There's a clear need for preparation, specifically consecration. We see this in verses 10 and 11. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. We see it emphasized again in verse 22. Let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. To consecrate means to make holy. 
And that's where the, the, the connection is. God is holy, and to be in his presence, to be prepared to receive his word and to be in this relationship with him, we must be made holy. To make something holy is to prepare it, to get, dedicate it to a specific purpose, to set it apart and purify it. God has chosen these people to be what? To be a holy nation. But listen, he didn't choose them because they were holy. No, he chose them because he intended to make them holy. These are simply the first steps of that process. God is preparing them to receive his law, a law that will reveal that they are to offer holy sacrifices and live holy lives and become the holy nation that God intended for them to be. And this process was to take several days. Verse 11 talks about today, tomorrow, and then on the third day, God would come. And you can think about it this way. If preparation to go into the presence of a king required jumping through a lot of hoops, we can go back to the book of Genesis in Egypt where these people had just come from. Before Joseph could be brought in before the Pharaoh, he had to have a bath, fresh clothes, and a complete shave. He was coming from the prison to enter into the presence of the Pharaoh, the king. And so it required preparation. How much more would it require preparation to enter into the presence of the king of kings? To meet with Yahweh, the one true God who made all things, who had just demolished the gods of Egypt and brought out these people. They needed to get ready. This preparation included the washing of clothes. It says, go wash. Multiple times we see reference to this. The washing of clothes is to be the removal of the dirt and the sweat and just the normal common grime you pick up during daily life. Daily life in a desert. Daily life in a tent. Daily life taking care of sheep and and other livestock. This is just the normal contamination of daily life. But listen, God is not common. He is holy. God is not normal. He is holy. And their preparation was to reflect that, to cleanse themselves of all that was common, the the normal dirt and grime of daily life, preparing to enter into his presence. This preparation also involved abstaining from physical intimacy. We see that in verse 15. That's, why, that's what it means by do not go near a woman. Although physical intimacy is a gift of God to be enjoyed within the marriage covenant, yes, these people for this brief amount of time were to set aside anything and everything that could distract them. They had something that was more important going on. And it required the temporary pause on those normal, common rhythms of life. Their full attention was to be completely devoted to getting ready to meet God, not romancing their spouse. There's a need for preparation. Wash, prepare, separate yourselves, gear up, and be ready because you are going to meet God. But there's not only a need for preparation, for sinful people like us to enter into the presence of God, we also see here a need to stay back. A need to stay back. There are three warnings. And as I read the text earlier, hopefully you heard the repetition. You're like, didn't he already say this? Yes. And he's saying it again because it's important. Three times we see these warnings. First in verse 12, God tells Moses, you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. 
We see this warning repeated in verse 21 and 22. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people. Verse 22, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Verse 24, again, we see, do not let the people, the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Again and again and again, there's these prohibitions, these warnings, stay back. Stay back. Why? Sinful people, holy God. This really continues a theme that begins back in Genesis. When Adam and Eve fell, when they rebelled against God, what happened? They were cast out of the Garden of Eden, barred from the place where God's presence had been manifested. And the way was guarded by an angel who was bearing a sword. Stay back. That's the message. This theme would be reinforced later, and we'll see it in the construction of the tabernacle, and later the similar construction of the temple. No entrance to the most holy place, whether in the tabernacle or the temple, was allowed. No entrance except by the high priest, one man, and that only one time per year. Sinful man has to stay back. There is a boundary and a limit established to keep us back from the holiness of God. Note that the first warning in verse 12 and 13 comes paired with this instruction to enforce this prohibition by the death penalty. It says at the end of verse 12, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Why would God take such great pains to keep them back from his presence, to warn them against coming near, and even threatening the penalty of death? God is teaching them something very important. And again, it has to do with his holiness. He is not like a common idol. He cannot be handled and kissed and touched the way that a graven image could by a carpenter and then later by a priest or a worshiper. No, we are to stay back. They need to keep from even touching the mountain where God would appear. God's holiness was so powerful that that it would even affect the ground upon which the Lord would come to stand. And this penalty was to be enforced, interestingly, in such a way that no one could even touch the guilty party. They're to be put to death by stoning, you know, piling up, throwing these large stones on top of them, or they were to be shot with a bow and an arrow. Why is that? Well, to touch a dead body with your hand would be to become contaminated. And the people are supposed to be consecrating themselves. So that would have been counterproductive. But I even think there's a sense in which perhaps this also shows a proper fear of God, that they are so respectful of his holiness and the mountain that they won't even touch someone who sinfully touched the mountain. They're to put that person to death, but take great pains not to touch even that person themselves. The second and third warnings, what we find in verse 21 through 24, comes with a threat, not of a humanly enforced penalty, not saying that that the Israelites were to put such a person to death. It comes with a warning about divine wrath. And we see this language, if they break through, that the Lord will break out against them. And and that's supposed to catch our ear and our eye. There's a connection there. If they break through, if they trespass across that boundary, if if they barge into the presence of God and touch the place 
and the person whom they've been commanded not to touch, then God's glory will break out against them. The same radical, holy glory that is causing the creation to tremble will consume them. There's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 about a man named Uzzah. I don't think any of you have named your kids Uzzah, probably. I know we have some Bible names in here. I've never met a person named Uzzah. But there was an Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. And this man is famous or infamous because he reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you know that story. He was being transported, and he was being transported improperly. It was on a cart of oxen. It wasn't being carried by priests using the poles that God had, had, had defined for them. And to touch the Ark of the Covenant was not to be done. And even though he was simply trying to stabilize it, when Uzzah touched the Ark, he instantly died. And David, King David, named that place Perez Uzzah. The Lord had broken out against Uzzah. The word Perez means breaking out. That's what God is warning them about here. If you break through to the place where you're not to come into, I will break out against you. God is warning them, stay back. But listen, again, God is not angry. God does not hate them. He loves these people. He has redeemed them. He's the one who brought them here to the mountain. Keep in mind, these warnings are not because God is angry. No, these warnings are for their own good, for their own safety. God does not want to see them consumed by his holy glory. And so although he is drawing near to them at the mountain, though they need to hear him, they need to experience this phenomenon of his holy glory it is crucial that they understand you come this close, get ready, prepare yourself, come to the foot of the mountain, but do not come any further. Sinful man cannot survive God's immediate, unmediated presence. The arrival of God at Mount Sinai, it reveals to us, it confronts us with the reality of God's powerful holiness, but it also shows us the painful reality of our own sinfulness and the limits that places upon us and our ability to experience the presence of God. So God announces his coming arrival. The people prepare. Then God himself draws near. Moses brings them to meet God in verse 17. And God touches down on the mountain. The mountain trembles. The people tremble. And Moses, as their spokesman and mediator, speaks to God, and God speaks to them in thunder. And now they're in a place where the law is about to be given. We read the Ten Commandments often. We quote them. We often fail to recognize that this is the context in which these Ten Commandments are given. This story confronts us once again with the powerful reality of God's holiness and the painful reality of our own sinfulness. And in response to this, I want to speak to three different types of people who may be in the room today. And the first type of person, maybe this describes you, maybe it doesn't. But there may be those here today who could be described as flippant or casual in terms of how you think about God, how you relate to God, how you approach or don't approach God. Friends, this text warns us not to trifle with the living God. Not to play games. If you have no sense of God's holiness, then listen, friend, you don't have a sense of who God actually is. 
It matters how we approach him. Flippancy, a casual attitude, that's not just inappropriate. It's actually spiritually naive and reckless and dangerous. We must demonstrate a proper fear of the God who is perfectly holy. And I want you to understand this. You need to be warned because this phenomenon happened thousands of years ago, yes. But listen, God is coming again. And he's coming here physically. His literal presence touching down on this created world. And just like at Sinai, on that day, there's going to be a loud trumpet. People will hear it. And just like at Sinai, the creation itself will shake when God returns. Zechariah 14 tells us that he will touch down on a mountain and it will do more than shake. It will actually split in two. On that day, God's glory will be seen, it will be heard, it will be felt because he's returning to judge not just Israel but the earth and to establish his eternal kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 26 says this, at that time, speaking of this day in Exodus 19 at Sinai, it says at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is eternal God. He is coming. This world will be shaken. It will come apart at the seams. And you have to ask the question today, are you prepared Are you ready to meet God? If not, then today what you must do is humble yourself before his anointed son, Jesus Christ. Cry out to King Jesus for mercy and be saved. The only way for you to be prepared, consecrated, ready for that day is to be united with Jesus Christ through faith, to submit yourself to his lordship, to repent of your sin and be redeemed by his blood. Otherwise, on that day, His wrath will break out against you. Friend, if you're not prepared for that day, respond to this message by recognizing the holiness of God, your own sinfulness, and humble yourself before him. Fear him, repent, and believe. But I think there's another type of person who may be in this room today. Maybe not someone who is kind of flippant and casual and doesn't realize who God is, but maybe you could be described as the distracted person. There are some here today who are transfixed. Your minds, your imaginations have been captured and consumed. You've been fixated on something, but it's not a sense of God. It's not his presence. It's not his holy glory. It's not his holy word. Perhaps your heart and mind have been captured and fixated by a pandemic on the realities of what's happening politically in the world around us. And your emotional state right now is not being regulated by the reality of God. You're actually in a constant state of response to the things that are going on around us, the circumstances that we are facing, the people who may disappoint or disagree with us. And it's producing fear and anger and frustration. If that describes you, you are the distracted person. 
Today, what I want to call you to is not to pretend like those, like those difficulties and those disappointments and those disagreements don't exist because they do, and that's real. But I want to call you today and urge you and exhort you, you must redirect your focus. Redirect your focus. You must not live in such a way that treats the things of this world as being of greater consequence than the majesty of God. You need to see that. And you need to respond to that. Your problem is not that you see too much of what's going on in the world. All that's there. It has been before and it will be tomorrow. Your problem is that God is getting pushed to the margins in your heart and your mind. The fear of God is to be the dominant theme in our hearts. And this fear, when it takes root, it'll displace all the other fears. It will overshadow your frustrations with other people. This fear will push your disappointments and concerns to the side and God will be the one capturing your attention, your focus. It will be the reality of his holiness and his glory that will grip you and will rule your emotions and dictate your responses and your actions. I want you to imagine the people on the mountain that day. Keep in mind, they are seeing and hearing and feeling the glory of God. And immediately, as you can imagine, any other thought, any other concern would have been immediately pushed completely out of their mind. As they stood there at the base of Mount Sinai, no father was thinking about, you know, there's that concerning limp with my donkey that developed last week. I need to get that figured out. Nobody's thinking that. No wife was troubled by the recent unresolved conflict with her neighbor that wasn't remotely in her mind at that moment. No elderly man was wondering how they were going to equip their military for the next battle as they prepare for conquest in Canaan. It wasn't on their radar. No young woman was daydreaming about the upcoming wedding next week. They were consumed, gripped, fixated on God. Utterly gripped by the reality of his presence and his glory. Listen, your heart and your imagination and your mind and your emotions, they will be ruled by whatever it is that you direct your attention to. And we're foolish to think that we can spend 90% of our time looking at everything that's going on around us in the world and still somehow maintain the proper fear of God. It won't happen. We've been catechized by social media, news stations, YouTube, whatever it may be. And so we get focused on national news, relational drama, our careers, our hobbies, whatever may be going on, you fill in the blank. Friends, whatever you put your focus on will shape you. It will shape you. But if your attention is on the God who is majestic in holiness, if your ears are attuned to his perfect and eternal word, if the word spoken in thunder at Sinai, the word that later was made flesh and dwelt among us, the word that has been written down by the hand of the apostles who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, if that's the word that is filling your ears and if it's the sight of God that is filling your eyes and if it's the sense of God's nearness to you that even affects your body, that truth will shape you. That reality will capture your attention, your focus, your imagination. It will rule your emotions and it will control your actions. Again, please hear me. I'm not saying disconnect from everything and read your Bible all day. You can't do that. But we must, as a people, 
be so gripped by our experience of God that it regulates our response to everything else. Everything. Everything. If that describes you today as the distracted person, hear this as a call and an exhortation to put your eyes on God and leave them there for a long time until you come away different. There's a third type of person who might be in the room today. Some are flippant and casual. Others may be distracted. But I want to speak to those who feel condemned. There are some here today who are actually very painfully aware of God. Very painfully aware of his holiness. Very painfully aware of their pervasive sinfulness. And it eats at you. You are quick to say, like the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. I can relate. I'm the sinful man who's supposed to stand here and talk about the holiness of God. So for you, perhaps, this entire message has only rubbed salt into a festering wound, in a sense, because it's reminded you of something that you know all too well, and it's almost too much to bear. As a sinful man, I can relate to you. And I come with good news for you today. I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I've quoted from it once before, but I want to direct your attention there again. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Hebrews 12 is really commenting on this story, pulling it into a discussion on something new that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, says this. The author of Hebrews speaks to believers here. He speaks to people who have believed in Jesus Christ, people who have placed their hope in the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And he says this, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Listen, some of you have been living at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's where you live. You're living with the burden of feeling that you have to consecrate yourself and it's not enough. That it all depends on your efforts and that God is is holding you at arm's length and refusing to let you come near. That he doesn't want you to draw near to him. You live with the fear of condemnation, fear of judgment and death. Friends, this need not be so. Listen, God has not changed. His holiness has not changed. His perfect standard has not changed. The potency of his glory is no less dangerous to sinful man today than it was in Exodus chapter 19. So what has changed? Jesus has come. Jesus has come. John 1 says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Instead of a command to consecrate yourselves, in Christ we have a promise. A promise, I will cleanse you. I will cleanse you. The washing with water in Moses' day could consecrate the people of Israel to a certain degree, but it could not make those people fit to enter the presence of God. But the blood of Jesus shed on the cross removes our guilt. It removes our shame. It cleanses us perfectly and fully, completely and eternally. At Sinai, there was a boundary that was drawn. And later in the tabernacle and in the temple, that boundary was marked with a heavy curtain. But when Christ died, the curtain was torn in two. And it symbolizes to us that the way to God is now open because of what Jesus has accomplished. So we need no longer live at the foot of Mount Sinai. Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant and the boundaries have actually been erased and the warning has been reversed for those who are in Christ instead of the message being keep back. The message for those who are in Christ who have been cleansed is this, draw near, draw near. It's been reversed. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, This is our hope. This is our reason for rejoicing. Not because God has changed, not because his holy standard has been diminished, not because we are any better than Israel, but because Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We are sinners, yes. God is holy, yes. But just as they saw God come down on Mount Sinai, we have seen God come down in the person of his son Jesus. And on another mountain, Outside the gate of Jerusalem, there his glory was revealed as he hung on the cross. And on that day, the earth shook. On that day, darkness covered the land for three hours. And on that day, atonement was made for sinners like us. Cleansing, a fountain of cleansing was opened up so that those who feel condemnation and guilt and shame could be made holy, made fit, and beckoned into the presence of God. So if you were that person today who feels condemnation, this message today has been painful for you. Look to Jesus. Believe his word. Trust in the promise of the gospel. Christ calls you today to come to him, to look and to live to believe and to keep believing, to in his promises of grace find confidence and full assurance of faith to stand before God. Heavenly Father, we come to you acknowledging that we are dust, we are frail, we are small, we are sinful. Lord, your word tells us this is true. We know that it's true and we feel that it is true today. Lord, you are the God of glory, majestic in your holiness, perfect. Your word says it. We know it. We feel it. Fathers, we're confronted with the reality of your 
holiness and the reality of our sinfulness. Our only hope we know today is to look to Jesus and we thank you for sending your son to do what the law could not, to do what we could not, to consecrate us and erase the boundary, to bring us near, to draw us near to yourself. What a great and marvelous privilege, O Lord, it is to know you, to have this confidence in Christ. They were warned not to break through, not to look upon your glory, but we are invited through Jesus to draw near and to behold your face. What a glorious gift. Lord, fix our eyes on your son, Jesus. Pray that you would grip our hearts, arrest our attention. Pray that you would grow in us a proper and holy fear, one that is grounded in the truth of your word, one that is grounded in the hope of the gospel of grace that we might love you and know you and worship you, that you might receive the glory, the honor, the fame, the recognition that is due to one who is glorious. Amen.